Hello and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast, currently the greatest Cars on Screens podcast since records began. I'm Chris Ratcliffe, I'm with Martin Spain, and Martin, since the last episode, what have you been watching? I have watched five minutes of Clarkson's Farm. I know you've watched more, so talk to me about Jeremy Clarkson on tractors. (laughs) Which is what it should have been called. Clarkson's Farm, for those who don't know and haven't seen it, is the story of him buying a farm near Chipping Norton, where he lives, which I think he already owned. But the farmer who was actually farming it decided to give up. And Clarkson, in his most Clarkson way, went, well, how hard can it be? And then we follow him over a year of his first crop, planting harvesting, dealing with livestock, dealing with tractors, dealing with everything. And it is really good, with one caveat. The Guardian gave it a fairly scathing review because if you don't like Clarkson, it is undistilled... No, sorry, it's the other way around. It is distilled Clarkson. It's like the, oh, no, I'm going to... I know how to do this. How hard can it be? Power. And if that wrangles, if that's not your thing, it's going to get on your nerves. This However... Is, this is where I stopped watching it. I watched the first five minutes and I went, I'm not sure I can watch Jeremy Clarkson deliberately being rubbish at things for a whole TV series, like bringing in knowledgeable expert people to help him out and then being wantonly and deliberately stupid because he thinks it's funny and, yes, I guess it is entertaining. For a short while, when the trailers came out, I think I said something along the lines of, this works for me in the context of a Top Gear or a Grand Tour um, VT, which is 20 minutes long max. Maybe let's yep. be generous and say it's a one hour special. But for like however many episodes there are in this series, six, ten, who knows? I'm not sure I can take that much wanton Clarkson stupidity. I would say that there is a very subtle and good balance between him being a bit stupid, and it's never really stupid because he wants to do it. He wants to do this thing well. And it's his money at the end of the day, and he says something much further down the line. So the the last episode, they're basically adding up what it's cost him and how much money he's made from the farm in a year. Bear I can imagine mind, that the first number is much bigger than the second. It Well... What he says in the last episode, and I won't give away the number because that is kind of the finale of the whole series, is what do farmers do who don't have an Amazon film crew and who wants to be a millionaire to top up their income? And when he talks about and he understands the gravitas of things like Brexit, of things like subsidies, it's that thing that we often talk about where somebody takes a concept which is complicated and nuanced and can distill it down really, really well. And there are times with Clarkson when he's a bit of that persona that we know. There are times when he is genuinely just filled with 
joy and with pride and he wants to do this thing really well and he he births a lamb and the lamb survives and he's just incredibly happy and then he has to take him to the abattoir and he finds it much more difficult than he ever thought he would there are these bits in there which are i think really informative they are entertaining i think the trailer was a little misleading and i know you and i talked about it before and having watched the whole series now as i have the idea that the trailer sets up this jeopardy so it sets up this no oh, i know how to do it i'm jeremy clarkson power and all these people going you're an idiot you're an idiot you're an idiot yeah well it's what what put me off was the the whole start where he goes shopping for a tractor and buys one that is utterly pointless for what he needs and doesn't fit in his barn Mm. And which is such a Jeremy Clarkson top gear thing to do of buying this giant overpowered tractor just because it's a Lamborghini. And I felt like, yeah, that works if you're on the grand tour and this is just a passing gag. Mm. But you've actually done this and presumably paid an awful lot of money for something that is utterly unsuited to what you're doing. And you want to be taken seriously as a farmer and you've done this. Is this just a gimmick to sell your TV show, or are you genuinely going to wantonly persist with this stupid tractor and be bloody-minded about it because it says Lamborghini on the front? I think I know the answer to that one, but that's what put me off. I watched the first bit and went, oh, no, he's, he's going gonna, he's gonna to buy a ridiculously overpowered tractor for what he needs, and it's not going to work, and it won't fit anywhere. Mm. And my heart kind of sank at that point and so I didn't have a great deal of time to watch the whole thing so I just went I'm just going to stop and I'll wait for other people to tell me whether it's worth me continuing or not what I would say is the first couple of episodes there's a lot of how hard can it be as it goes on and as you realize that the people who are working for him are the ones that can I want to say stand up to him if that's not the right if that's the right terminology he listens to them. He gets what they're saying. When they say, this needs to be in the ground in the next 10 days, it's like, oh my God, right, we need to go and, and do this. And he, a lot of the mistakes that he makes are genuine mistakes. So this isn't like Top Gear. He's not lining a field with dynamite to, instead of running a plow machine thing through it. It's, it is more nuanced than that, but there is this sense of he is learning and he's he's actually quite, I think, he becomes that character for the audience where we don't get how difficult farming is. You know, you're driving up and down in a, in a tractor or a combine harvester. How hard can that be? Well, actually, there's quite a lot of skill to it. Yeah, I get the impression he switches between, like, Top Gear Grand Tour Clarkson and historical program about military achievement Clarkson, where he's far more serious and far more genuine in his communication of knowledge and fact without the sort of overblown, exaggerating a million times a minute type thing. It's actually different with this because he is not over-researched. He's not presenting the facts. His role in this is of a trainee of a wannabe and he completely throws himself into this thing of why do I need that what does this do why is this damage wrong like I, I get 
none of this. I don't understand what buttons you press to make the track to do this thing. And he never sort of goes, well, you know, in 1972, government subsidies were this, and since Brexit came along, then this has happened. It's just like, hang on, you know, what's... It's like you were running a farm. You would say, you don't care what happened 30 years ago, for the most part. You go, what's this costing me? What do I need to do? How do I make money at the end of it? Let's see how much money I make at the end of it doing it. It's worth a watch, I think. I think stick through the first couple of episodes. If it gets too much, I would be really, really interested to see what your 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 feedback is in the next episode. Well, we can come back to this in the, in the next episode because obviously this is slightly... Uh, on, a, on a tangent to our, our normal coverage, but it is Clarkson. It has, you know, a little bit of car content, albeit tractor content. Um, and it, this is the th- this is one of the three Grand Tour presenters doing other things with Amazon. James May's done um, Our Man in Japan, which I really thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, he's done his cooking series, Oh Cook, which I also thoroughly enjoyed. But they don't, they don't appear to be James being anything other than James. Mm. Um and perhaps this is just Clarkson being Clarkson. I will go back and give this another try. But um, in terms of other car content, what have you been watching? Have you? Have, did you catch any of the IndyCar? Did you? Well, I want to say IndyCar. This is like the the NTT IndyCar series brought to you by <laughs> cheesy sandwiches and this fizzy drink we like. Um, oh. I did notice those. They don't. They they sponsor. I can't even remember what it is they were sponsoring. But I was Everything. watching the IndyCar from Detroit, and like messages were brought to you by, you know, <laughs> cheesy what's its. <laughs> the what I really love is the onboard cameras that they've got, and it's only like four onboard cameras, and they're all sponsored by the teams that are like the team's main sponsors. So there was one that was like, here's Takuma Sato on the sanitizescreencleaners.com car. <laughs> <laughs> What? I hope that's true. It's, I hope that's true. <laughs> it's, it's genuinely something like that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to look it up now. But yeah, I, I, I really like IndyCar, and actually, in the last episode, we talked about the coverage and the the gaps that you get while NBC are on a are on a break. And I don't know if you've noticed in Detroit that Sky now have uh, Tom Gamer doing interstitial bits. Yes, I had, and. It- Sometimes it works. Sometimes there's a... I've definitely heard some producer on the comms saying, you're on now, <laughs> <laughs> which, which which made me go, oh, this is a little bit amateurish or this is clearly, you know, this is a, a first go. Um, but it does make a difference. It does make a difference to not just have what it feels effectively like. You know that locked-off camera you get on the Nürburgring 24 mm. coverage, which is just basically the camera that's on a tripod at the end of the pit lane and you just see the main straight. I don't know if they still do that, but they used to be on the Nürburgring 24-hour coverage. At night, they just gave up. They yes. didn't do anything. The they helicopters were flying. The Marshalls Post people, everyone just went home and they left this one camera running on a tripod. And you just watch a bunch of lights in the darkness go past with no idea what was going on. <laughs> and IndyCar, when it went to an ad break, in the UK coverage always felt like that, where you're just like, hello, is anyone there? <laughs> and there would be these de- deathly silences. Um, this is better. Uh, but it's still, it still feels a bit scruffy and and less like it was filmed through a potato. What I do find is when I watch it, I'm in awe of how hard it is to drive an Indy car and the, the places they race. Oh I mean, gosh, that yeah. Detroit was it Belle Isle in Detroit? That yeah. race 
where they're enduring like 50 degree heat in the cockpit and it's a really bumpy horrible track that doesn't appear to have anything like a main straight for you to kind of relax on that is some hard work did you see the um the scoops that they put on the top of the aero screen i did they did have a bit of a pikey 3d printed in the back of the garage look to them but again you know i was always in favor of the aero screen when mm. red bull tested it and sebastian vettel went oh i feel a little bit sick and you after know, one, one lap yeah after one lap formula one binned it and went with a halo and i thought that's just dumb how is it you can't make this work when you see it on the indycar my brain's a bit like ah, i kind of prefer the halo if i'm honest because mm. you get it, it gets around that problem of the airflow um but yeah, I've, I, the IndyCar coverage is actually really, really good, and the season is shaping up to be classic. So, I mean, if any, if not watching motorsport and you're kind of a bit bored of Max versus Lewis on Formula One, or you want something different to watch, then I can highly recommend the the IndyCar coverage. One thing I will also say is, if you are in a country that can't get these broadcasts, or perhaps you are unable to pay for Sky, or you can't get reception. Reddit.com slash r slash motorsportstreams is your friend. <laughs> Say no more. What are you drinking tonight? Because I've just realised we haven't covered that. That's a good point. What am I drinking tonight? Well, what I am drinking is this tiny little bottle of Ardbeg, um, the 10-year-old, which Chris has sent me in a box full of other small whiskey samplers. Um, now, I do like a bit of Ardbeg. I have had the 10 before, but it's been a while, so I'm just enjoying that at a moment. I also have uh, like a whole load of um, bourbons because you're determined to try and get me to like bourbon. <laughs> I'm, I'm not determined. I'm, it was purely because I think if you just went to the shop and you bought a bottle of whatever, it, that's going to be quite one-dimensional. So you've got a small selection there. I have actually dug into my cupboard and dug out a Laddie 10 from Brook Laddick, which is... Oh, I had that. I think I gave you a bottle of it because I thought it tasted rank. <laughs> I bought some because everyone went on about it and I drank it and went, wow, this tastes worse than Tenants. <laughs> we got a tweet from uh, Lewis Craig, one of our long-time listeners, who pointed me at an article from The Guardian by, uh, is it by Tim Jones? Um, Tim Jones, who watched all of the Fast and Furious films in 24 hours, speaking of doing your homework. And the headline is, my brain has liquefied. <laughs> I read that piece. It's a quite a fun piece. And, and he's, I know that um, Richard Porter did a similar exercise for the Road Rat magazine, which is mm. a really fun piece if you want to dig that out. But... I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could watch all of those movies in 24 hours. Once I did a time travel all-nighter, which was a thing put on at the Barbican Cinema, I think. Mm. Uh, or maybe it was somewhere else. It was somewhere in London, London Cinema. And they played four films about time travel starting at midnight. And so I think we got Back to the Future 2, Terminator 2... Highlander, and then they finished it off with 12 monkeys at 6 a.m. <laughs> and we were fucked. 6 a.m., 12 monkeys. 12 monkeys is a, is a tricky watch at the best of times. <laughs> when you are sleep deprived and you've sat through, you know, six hours of time travel stuff already, my brain was melted. And 
you know, I, I'm not quite sure I could take 24 hours of Vin Diesel grumbling family <laughs> at me and Corona and barbecues and vehicular mayhem. Didn't you say that Highlander was only a time travel movie because time passes during the film? <laughs> <laughs> it was the first time I'd seen Highlander at the cinema and, oh God, it's just such a shit movie. I know people love it and I can see why you love it, but honestly, it's just crap. I, I've never seen it. Oh, I mean, it's worth watching. I'm sure there is a moment where a man gets into an elevator then, which goes up one floor and then he gets out and walks down a set of <laughs> stairs to the same floor he started on. It's really weirdly acted and weirdly blocked but it's got an absolutely cracking soundtrack and the guy playing the Kurgan I forget the actor's name is just mega on the subject of Fast and Furious Mm. Fast 9 is out it's out in some countries and the reviews are overwhelmingly average (laughs) scaling the heights of mediocrity yeah there's three out of five 60%. 60%. I haven't looked at what it is on Rotten Tomatoes, but, you know, Empire gave it three stars out of five. Mm. And at this point, the ninth film in a franchise is still scoring three out of five. I kind of see that as a success, right? But- I, I, if this came up with a stone-cold five-star classic at this point, that's unheard yeah. of. So to be still scoring kind of three out of five is pretty good. And I can't remember when it's out in the UK. I have a feeling it's out in a week or two. But I haven't been to the cinema in like two years now. (laughs) A year and a half, maybe. Um, So I am going to make a special pilgrimage to watch Fast 9 at the cinema and we will do a review of it. Mm. Possibly in the next pod, maybe the one after that. But I am... I need to see utter stupidity on the screen. (laughs) And there are no showings of Highlander 2, The Quickening, near me. So I'm going to go with Fast 9. It's got to be just critic proof at this point, hasn't it? People will just go and see it because it's the new Fast and the Furious film. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when you're at the ninth thing, you're not going to get the critics on side, even the critics who are kind of friendly. It's just, it's made for the audience. And it's, I think, going to give the audience what they want, which is magnet planes and cars with rockets strapped to them going to space. (laughs) I haven't even seen it. This is just in the trailer. I know it's crazy. Um, But yes, it's worth having a read of that Fast and Furious piece. Um, And on the subject of Fast 9, go and read some of the reviews just to get a feel for what it's like. But honestly, cinemas could probably use your money. Mm. So if you do want to go see something big and dumb, go and watch Fast 9. I will say, on a very, very thin, flimsy tangent, one film that I have watched that's on Netflix, and it's a Netflix production, is called The Mitchells versus The Machines. And everybody I have met since I've watched it, I've said, watch The Mitchells versus The Machines. Because it is essentially about a family who find themselves up against the uprising of a Siri or an Alexa that decides it's going to take over the world because it's had enough of people just swiping its face and it makes these robots and they go off and try and kill all the humans. And on the car note, because there is a road trip element, he says, try not to give too much away, they all pile into an American station wagon, which if you look carefully... The make of the car is a sturdy and the model is a sensible. <laughs> it's a Volvo. No, 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 literally, the badge on the front says sturdy and the, like, the chrome badge down the side says sensible. It is a sturdy, sensible car. <laughs> I like it. Um, I know for a fact that my son's seen this. Uh, I 
can't remember if he maybe he watched it while he wasn't feeling very well or something but i know they've seen it and really enjoyed it i have not seen it yet but i know it's been really well reviewed so um we'll try and catch that at some point no doubt but speaking of speaking of films that rubbish we saw, american cars well speaking <laughs> of films that we saw at the cinema i don't know about you but when i was a much younger man gone in 60 seconds the 2000 uh, Nick Cage, Angelina Jolie, and others film was a big, big one growing up. Went to see it at the cinema, had it on DVD. I think I've got it on Blu-ray. Loved that film. Watched it back to front. Watched it every which way. However, I've never seen, or hadn't until very recently, seen the original that it's based on. And neither had you. So... In the spirit of a bit of sort of car film archaeology, rather than having two films to review in this episode, we're going to have one film that both of us have seen, and we're going to talk about the 1974 film, Gone in 60 Seconds. We should add, before we go any further, you can go and hear us talking about the 2000 remake of Gone in 60 Seconds on episode 13 of the Automobile Podcast, mm. uh, where Chris argues why it's brilliant and I tell him that he's wrong. <laughs> Rather than have that argument again, shall we talk about... Because... So... I'm interested to see what you think of this one, the original one, because I started watching it and I think I sent you a text about 10 minutes in going, <laughs> dude, objectively, this movie is shit. So... Let's start with the plot before we start giving away the reviews. <laughs> the The plot of the film is not dissimilar to the Gone in Second one. So if you know the Nick Cage version, you'll recognise this. So the main character who's called... I, I I'm not sure how you pronounce this because I'm not, in, not sure anybody actually says it out loud. Mandrian, Mandrian Pace, who's played by H.P. Uh, Halicki, who wrote it, directed it, did all the driving... Uh, starred in it and all that sort of thing. Produced it. Produced yeah, you it. look at the credits and it's just, it's all him. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> he works as an insurance assessor and the company that he works for also have a chop shop where they basically buy these wrecks that the insurance companies have written off, chop out the VIN numbers, steal another car, swap the, the, the bits over and, and putting these cars back on, on the road, basically laundering cars. I loved watching that bit. This is basically what Quentin Wilson was trying to tell us about in old, <laughs> old Top Gear when they were talking yes. about chop chop shop cars, cut, where like one shuts. half of it is one. Cutting shuts, that's the word. Um, and I was watching this going, just on a, I need Quentin Wilson to, to sub, you know, urbanely swerve in from screen right and explain to me that this is what you shouldn't do and this is bad and avoid yeah cars that look like they've had this done to them so he's working for the, for this uh for this company called i think it's, it's called something like chase research and investigations and he has somebody some boss come to him and says i will give you four hundred thousand dollars if you steal these 48 cars which includes like rolls royces and limousines and they go out and steal a load of these cars they then have to get, last of all, Eleanor. And this is where the film really, pick your cliche, goes into Top Gear, finds its finds its traction, whatever. Um, <laughs> what you're saying is the first hour of this movie is a bunch of tedious nonsense that is barely intelligible until they get to the giant car chase that forms the second half of this movie. Well, right, you say this. The... Um, 
the IMDb trivia page for this film is immense. So, you know, like when you watch something on Amazon Prime, we've got the x-ray bit down the side. You need yes. to watch this having an iPad on your lap with the IMDb trivia page. So um, one entry, and I'm going to read this verbatim. There was no official script for the movie, apart from several pages outlining main dialogue sequences. Much of the action slash dialogue was improvised and made up by the cast and crew as they went along. Really? <laughs> you can't tell. It's the, the, it's kind of obvious. This caused many problems for the editor, Warner E. Layton, who never knew what footage was being dumped on him or where in the movie it belonged. <laughs> you, you can also tell that. <laughs> <laughs> so... Right, the first half. So, right, let's quickly run through the first half because it's fucking awful. Um, and I say this as somebody who likes low-budget, pulpy B-films. The, the fifth is the absolute bare minimum. The whole film was shot for $150,000. And you kind of go, well, that's just like 1973. Like, how much is that? American Graffiti, which is widely accepted to be a low-budget film, yeah? Yeah was shot for $777,000. The Exorcist, in the same year, cost $12 million to make. This is low budget. And I can't believe that they were able to do what they did with one hundred and fifty grand. I, I mean, I was watching it going, how did you source the cars? How did you source four Eleanor Mustangs? Well, you know the scene... So the bit at the start where they're chopping up the cars and swapping the bits over? Yeah. That was H.B. Alecki's workshop. And sometimes they had to close down production of the film so he could get some more cars in, fix them, and make more money to pay for the rest of the film. Um, there was... If you look at uh, at the end of the credits, there's basically a line that says, thank you to everybody who helped me make my dream come true or something like that. So... It, it was all people helping out. It was all stuff that I'm sure he had access to in some way or another. You know, there were like fire departments and police departments closing roads and all sorts. And the whole first half of this film is just the bare minimum of film to get to the second half. It's all this. This is what really kind of threw me in when I sent you that text was it's all scenes of things happening with completely unrelated dialogue going on over the top <laughs> in narration. So what you're hearing is what you expect to be seeing on the screen, but the people are doing something else. So when they're, they're doing these chop shop cars, you're seeing them pull the cars apart and having a conversation is in the audio, but you're not seeing them have that conversation. Mm. The conversation is totally separate. <laughs> so it's not lined up with it. It's clearly they recorded it after the fact or they've taken the dialogue from a completely different thing and laid it over the top of this. And it is so disconcerting that I just kind of go, I, I don't know what's going on. Is, mm. my, is my playback broken? <laughs> and it does this so much. And so much of the dialogue is sort of mumbled and the sound quality is really low because clearly they, they maybe had a mic and they could get it close enough or you get the impression like you say this is an independent production you get the impression that lots of this was done on the hoof filmed where they could and then they all hopped into a car and ran away from the police <laughs> and what's really interesting i think is that the so some of the scenes particularly where they start going to racetracks Penelope jones has a cameo who was i don't think he ever won the indy 500 he raced in the indy 500 he's quite well known in the u.s they are doing a lot of handheld shots at events where 
it's kind of not part of the film. They've obviously just gone and shot at an event. So it has a very sort of documentary look. And there's even a story, again, in, in one of the IMDb entries of a um, a fire truck was attending a thing. I think it was when the, when the two cars collide and catch fire. That wasn't part of the film, but they were kind of nearby. And, and he was like, quick, film that, and we'll see if we can like insert it in the film somewhere. So the first half of the film is pretty rubbish. You don't need to really know who anybody is. Yeah, if you've seen the 2000 movie, which I'm guessing almost everybody has, you know the general gist of this. He's been asked to go and steal a bunch of cars which are given ladies' names and scribbled on a blackboard, and one of them is Eleanor, and the Eleanor proves difficult to get, and chasing ensues. That pretty much sums it up. Did you spot the two things that were a reference in the remake to this film? I'm sure I heard somebody mention they were going to go and get their tool in this one. I missed that one. Right at the start. And that, I think, is why. Because I always used to make fun of that line from Giovanni Ribisi in the second one. He says, I'm just going to go and get my tool. And then he gets a house brick. That's not a tool, that's a brick. Yeah, I, I think... I'm pretty certain at the front of this, and I have only watched this once, but quite somewhere quite near the start, one of the guys, possibly Pace himself, actually references going to get his tool. So that's one. I did not spot the other two callbacks, though, other than obviously the character, you know, Atley. There was Atley Jackson. Atley Jackson, that's it. I was going to say Jones. but um. There was a scene when they get the car back to the garage where they find the trunk is full of bags of heroin ah, and the policeman yes. turns up and they rev it to try and blow the marching dust away. That's not marching dust, but that was the other one where I got like, ah, so right. Shall we talk about the chase? Because this is a film of two halves and the first half is really quite weak. Generally tedious. And then the second half is is just it's it's kind of it's fast and furious vehicular mayhem before fast and furious was ever thought of it's mm. it's so destructive and so i mean it's just real this is the thing that everything was done for real and the thing you kind of take away is how exposed hb hilicky and anyone else who was doing the driving is because these cars are made of paper mm. you cough on them and they bend well again you go through the IMDb trivia page. There's a scene in a construction site with police cars. One of those rolled and the siren basically came through the roof and nearly killed the driver. And that's still in the film. There's a scene early on at one of the dealerships where somebody was nearly killed because they were standing behind a car that got hit. And that's still in the film. And there's a scene where Pace tries to dive across a freeway to take an exit really late and he gets tagged by another car and hits a lamppost. That wasn't supposed to happen. H.B. Alicky was driving that car, got knocked out. The first thing he apparently said when he regained consciousness was, did we get the shot? <laughs> there, were, there were two things that really struck, stuck out, stuck out at, stuck out with me, stuck out to me. Anyway, that stuck out about particularly this chase. The one thing that I really missed in the remake was this sense of a big chase. So we have the thing where they're doing the chase around, like, again, through streets and alleyways, and then they're going around the 
the docks and that's when they get hit by the wrecking ball and it's like are you okay because you've kind of gone through a wall (laughs) yes whereas with this they're chasing down highways they're chasing through city streets they're chasing like down sidewalks and stuff and apparently most of the people watching in the background aren't extras and so basically for the production they went to a county auction and they bought old police cars for like two hundred dollars a pop and people were stood at the side of the road and this yellow mustang goes flying past with like body damage four police cars are chasing it and people and somebody would get hurt and like the rest of the cars would would carry on and like the crowd are, are sort of having to go at these actors going like wait you're the police why aren't you stopping why aren't you helping this person and they're like we're like not actually the police and there's one scene where they stop at um they stop at uh, the police stop at a gas station or the characters of the police and it's this biker gang just happened to be at the at the gas station and they start heckling the police because they don't realize it's a movie you get that feel of you know all the things they say about um french connection where it's not kind of a stunt in the sense that we know now where you know like when they're filming Batman Begins and they just seal off half of Chicago so they can drive a yeah, tumbler. Yeah, this, this feels like they're just getting away with it. That was the thing with the French Connection car chase. You look at it and go, jeez, they're so on the limit of, of of what the car would handle. And if things had gone seriously wrong, then they would have been maiming, if not death. Oh, God, yeah. And I think that's that's the thing with this movie. There's a, there's a jump at the end where... Eleanor clears a bunch of cars via a, a sort of like a bonnet ramp at the end and the car hits 30 feet in height and travels 128 feet, which is pretty impressive on itself. And it doesn't have the aid of like a gas ram or something <laughs> that they, you know, like, like they use in, in many movies now to make cars flip or, or travel great distances. They cheat and use compressed air or compressed gas to push a ram to force the car to do things. Um this is just them driving. And when it landed, H.B. Hilicki compressed 10 vertebrae in his back and never walked the same again. <laughs> and when you watch it, because, of course, it's shot in slow-mo from, like, three different angles, and you watch the car from the side view, and it pitches forward, and it just smashes into the ground, and you can just see bodywork bending like paper. And you feel like going, oh, my goodness, how on earth what on earth were you thinking and how on earth did you think it would be a good idea to strap yourself into these things? <laughs> because these 70s cars were just built like shite. Mm. They're awful. And they're everywhere in this movie. A lot of the a lot of the thing I kind of watched with the car chase was thinking, I can't believe the balls on this guy driving these cars with these dreadful chassis. <laughs> and assembled probably not very well. And just doing mind-boggling real stunts with them on roads that may or may not have been closed. I'm not sure. (laughs) This is the thing with the movie. You sit through this terrible first half to get to this electrifying second half 40-minute car chase, which is just full of some of the biggest carnage you're ever going to see. And because they didn't do, you know, no CGI wasn't even a thing, Mm. they just did everything for real, pretty much as far as I can tell. And like you say, if, if things went wrong, they left it in if it looked good so the, there was one stunt where the i think it's when eleanor although not entirely clear for, again from imdb 
the filmmakers wanted a car to slide as it left one of the dealerships that it drives through. So they put oil under the back tyres. And as a result, it slid and crashed into a row of brand new Cadillacs at this dealership, which they then had to buy (laughs) because they kind of just totaled them. But actually, that's, that's that's another good point is that we're so used now as well to people like Tanner Faust, who you know, you know, there's that drive. Is it Dukes of Hazard, where there's like there's two lines of traffic going round a bend, and he just drifts the General Lee perfectly through the middle. Yes, I've seen that clip. It's sick. Yeah. Like, and, and I hate to use that kind of surfer dude thing, but watching someone with that level of precision is. I mean, it's 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 both beautiful and astonishing <laughs> and 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 sick making too because you know for a fact that you'd never achieve that level of car control. This has none of that. So <laughs> no, it doesn't. The, when you see you see people sliding cars and being really really brutal with these cars because they have to be, and the drifts aren't beautiful. They're larry and they're twitchy and there's one scene where eleanor comes out of a dealership and obviously the driver has i think he gets a bit of a tank slapper on so he wants to drift up to the edge of this parked car and then like the front basically just twangs into the side of it before he drives off and yeah it's just so raw in what it does it doesn't have the comedy necessarily of something like blues brothers or the budget for that matter and i think every dollar they had must have ended up on the screen or paying fines i'm not sure and one thing as well going back to the the jump you just mentioned particularly when you see it side on and you see the shock wave travel up the body yeah. as it lands and then you think hang on this also featured in the remake because there's that scene when they're driving across the golden great bridge and nick cage hits the ramp on the back of the um, ambulance, flies gracefully through Uncanny Valley before landing. Yes, that's the thing. At least this was just like some cars that were in the way because of circumstance. It wasn't like, I'm just going to jump over 10 cars (laughs) on a bridge and land and somehow drive off. Um... But the, the one thing that I do like about the end of the film... And I'm not, uh, I don't know, can you even spoil this film? Is that somebody has the capacity to actually tie the story up and actually kind of, I think the ending is actually more satisfying than the remake. I mean, you've sat through an awful lot of shite to get to this point, but. Yeah, it's true. It's like somebody's actually thought about this and it has this really neat little end. And I found that incredibly satisfying. and I loved it. I think if you watch the film, the first half is rubbish. I, I, nobody can tell you otherwise. It's not, you can't really defend it. It's it's like the worst indie film you've ever seen. Yeah. Um, only it's shot in the 70s and you can't hear what's being said and there's no discernible plot. <laughs> if you hadn't seen the remake, you really, really would struggle with this. <laughs> yes. But you've just got to kind of skip to like 55 minutes in and then all hell breaks loose and just continues to break loose for like another 40 minutes. It's almost just like a series of things that happen. It's not like one chase. So in um, Gone in 60 Seconds in the remake, it's kind of one chase. So they've got Eleanor, 
the cops in the E39 that isn't the M5 are kind of stalking him. Oh, they spot each other. Right, go. And it's like one chase, big jump, off to the docks. Whereas with this, you could almost have put each bit of that chase in any order. And you yeah. could even just watch any one of them and kind of go, oh, that's quite satisfying. And then you watch it again and you think, hang on, where was that cameraman standing? Hang on. This isn't sped up like a lot of films were in the 70s. It's a bit like Gumball. That the bit early on where they're driving through downtown Manhattan. At, oh, like, yeah. My favourite bit. I love that bit so much. It's brilliant. But again, this is almost like um, Ronin. Because I said when I, when I talked about Ronin on this, the film itself is fairly mediocre and you're only watching it for the car chases. With this... And Robert De Niro's expressions in the car chases. Yes. This is kind of like... You know when you get a really bad stereo and you turn the treble right up and you turn the bass right up? This has even less story than Ronin. Like, the film, if you took the car chase out, the film would just be unwatchably bad. However, the car chase exceeds Ronin, honestly, I think, for me. I think it is just so over the top. I think it is so daring. I think it is just impossible to replicate something like that. I think it outshines the big budget remake just for just for the car chase, not for the overall For the film. car chase, I can remember watching the big the big budget remake and enjoying it kind of in yeah. its its orange glossy grad filtered <laughs> silliness. But the problem I always had with it, it was all this amazing machinery on screen that just never got driven. Mm. And the one thing they did was the Eleanor chase because, of course, I didn't know about this movie that it was it was a remake of and didn't understand why the Eleanor car was special. And I wanted more car chasing with the other cars. Um, interestingly, the there was going to be a sequel to this original movie called Gone in 60 Seconds 2, um, I think The Junk Man was its subtitle or something, and and H.B. Hilicki uh, again started filming this sequel in in 1989 uh, and was unfortunately killed during a stunt sequence for the film, which obviously never finished. Um, And his widow is the lady that worked with Jerry Bruckheimer to make the 2000 remake. And so she was, I guess, a, a... producer or some kind of thing on there she is also the lady who owns the company eleanor licensing llc Mm. uh, where she goes around and stops people from building eleanor remakes or referring to anything with a eleanor badge on it or referring to a ford mustang fastback as an eleanor did you see the bit at the end of the credits or under the credits i did not know so if you watch beyond I think as soon as the credits start rolling, if you don't switch off straight away... Which is what I did. I don't blame you. The There is footage, and I think this is apparently from a later DVD release, because you can buy this on DVD, apparently. We should, we should say, we both watch it on Amazon Prime. So if you are an Amazon Prime subscriber in the UK at least, you can watch this, like, now for free. But yeah, so if you don't turn off straight away, under the credits, they have um, H.B. Halicki's Widow... Uh, whose name I've already forgotten. Denise. Denise. Being driven in the original Eleanor at some later event and basically doing skids and donuts and all this sort of thing. And that car was just utterly mangled. And I think it is like the original. And it's got just like gone in 60 seconds, daubed on it in paint. It's 
properly. You, I kind of think if you'd watched this film in like 1998, what would you have even thought about it? Like if Eleanor had turned up at a car show as this mangled yellow Mustang, would like who would have actually got it? Who would have known? You'd have to be a real connoisseur. So the kind of people who had VHS copies of Cité en Rendezvous, mm. those are probably the kind of people at that time... I wouldn't have known what this was because, like I say, I watched the Gone in 60 Seconds remake and because I'd read magazines that told me it was a remake, I knew that, but I'd never seen the no. original and I had no desire to go hunting it out. And to be fair, I doubt we would have watched it if we weren't doing this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. But it's a really interesting thing to go back and look at, you know, this 70s smash-and-grab style of of filmmaking that let them get away with this stuff that you just could not do, this could not be done now. And I imagine one of the reasons why the 2000 remake has the car chase it does is because there was just no way of them being able to top the first one. Mm. There's no way they could have done it. The budget would have had to be tripled. And even then, I don't think they would have managed it. So you can kind of understand where they, why they went the way they did mm. with the remake. What I will say about this, interestingly, this, as we said earlier on, was made for $150,000. It made $40 million at the box office. That is astonishing. That is some serious performance. Uh, and I was looking for reviews of this online, and I found a few that say, you know, it's yeah, it's kind of rubbish, but the car chases are great. And I found one which I cannot find now, of someone who said, I went to see this in the cinema, and this was exactly what we wanted. We got 50 minutes of car mayhem. <laughs> this is the guy. The guy's the car king. He's the best stunt driver in the world, blah, 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 blah. But someone who, who clearly went to the cinema in the 70s wanting dirty movie trash mm. with cars getting destroyed and felt like they got value for money and it's clear that quite a lot of people felt the same way because for it to make 40 million dollars is just back in the 1970s is astonishing <laughs> let's move on now to what's happening online and given that it's pride month what i wanted to do was highlight some of the lgbtq plus creators out there in our car world and i kind of hit a bit of a brick wall with it frankly which i don't know what that says about the car community or whether the interest in such things is waning for for those people or honestly if they've got better things on their minds so we've talked in the past about charlie martin who not only designed our logo rather brilliantly um, but also has a YouTube channel, which is well worth a subscription, documenting her racing exploits. Uh, Richard Morris, who is a name I will come back to in a second, he also does some stuff on YouTube, which is well worth a watch. And he founded Racing Pride, which is a fantastic organisation which highlights LGBTQ uh, participation in motorsport and is really trying to make the sport more inclusive. Um, I am saddened, frankly, that we can't include more of that content. If anybody's listened to this and you know creators who are doing stuff out there and want to shout out or deserve a shout, please let me know. I would be more than happy to, to cover that in the future. Um, also, go and check out uh, at Racing Pride on, I think it's at Racing Pride HQ on Twitter. 
fantastic organization doing some brilliant work um also before we get on to our picks for this week we talked last time about the unicorn test as i think it's now been described on carfection the mclaren f1 911 gt1 strasser version and the mercedes clk gtr and carfection has a kind of follow-up chat between Henry Catchpole and James James Cottingham of DK Engineering, who supplied all the cars amazingly. I've not seen that. I didn't know that they'd done that. Is that on Carfection? It's on the Carfection channel. It. It's a bit of a... Ooh. It's the two of them just sort of sitting. So you remember when um, Henry did the McLaren F1 with Evo, and he then had to do a follow-up video where he was just like, here's all the nerdy details about the McLaren F1 I really like. <laughs> yes. It's, it's a bit of that. And also, if you have enjoyed them, and if you do want to know more about the cars how those shoots come together i would love to have done the interview with henry talking about this however he was on the smoking tire and they do a far better job than i ever would have so if you want to know more particularly the kind of the behind the scenes so what it's like to turn up at millbrook with three cars that are probably worth 30 million between them and actually produce the videos and do all the things that is well, well worth a watch. We'll put links to all of these. I, yeah, it's a like podcast player waiting for me to have time to listen to it. Yeah. I never, I can't remember if I asked you this last time. Of the three cars, which would you have if you were told you could have any of those three, but only one, which one would you have? I would have to play the Desert Island Discs card because I think almost everybody that you ask would take the McLaren F1 and I would take the McLaren F1. If I could have two... I I I go back and forth. I would probably take the Mercedes. I see. I would probably go for the Porsche. I I don't think there's a right answer because I think they're both flawed. But no, there probably isn't. And and uh, the McLaren F1, I think, is a wonderful thing. Mm. But uh, I don't know. I mean, any of them are just just ridiculous. But I I. I'm not sure if I'd get more enjoyment out of the Porsche about being able to drive it. The mm. F1 is reputed to actually be quite difficult to drive well because it's not designed to to have decent brakes and <laughs> you know no power steering, really old tire technology and the Porsche sort of felt like it would be on your side a bit more. Mm. But yeah, I, I mean, it's just an interesting question. Um, I do note that Henry has been doing a bunch of other things uh, on Carfection, but there's a test of the new Golf R, which is sort of pertinent to my interests because we have an old Mark 7 Golf R as our family wheels, and all the reviews of the Mark 8 have made me not want one, including Henry's. Fair enough. It's a great review, but I, I, the, the Mark 8 Golf the interior doesn't really do it for me. The whole everything is now a touchscreen. Oh, God, yeah. That um, just bugs me. And somehow they've made it look less special. The, R, the new R version looks more anonymous at the front and slightly more chavvy at the back. <laughs> and and with the best will in the world, I, even Carfection's amazing cinematography can't change, can't change that for me. But what else have you been watching on the YouTubes? So there was a video... I love what Formula One has been doing with their YouTube channel. I'm a complete sucker for like the 10 best races of like 1982 or something. All of those sorts of clip packages that they do. Although they did one 
recently that was um, F1 driver hand gestures, which is <laughs> really? genuinely... So it's basically uh, David Coulthard giving Michael Schumacher the yes. finger, um, Michael Schumacher giving... Who was it? Was it Montoya the finger? Um, All of those. Alonso giving somebody the finger. I can't remember. There's, what else is there? Does anyone else do anything other than give people the finger? There's loads. It, it's literally a compilation. And there's. Do they have the Alonso ducks, the hand clap ducks that he used to do when he won? I don't think they do, but this is gestures from inside the car. So actually, well, he was. Oh, he, he, he drove did, around yeah. at the end of the, he, the end might. of every race he won when he was with Benetton, not Benetton, um, Renault. Renault. Um, he'd drive around and do clapping with one hand. He'd just make duck hands. <laughs> and I just used to love. They used to used to call them the Alonso ducks. I used to find that very interesting. On the subject of hand gestures, before we move on, total tangent. But I have noticed that usually on a cooling down lap, Lando Norris is always good for some kind of waving. At oh yeah. Usually Carlos Sainz, but somebody else as well. He tends to wander around like like he hasn't seen him for ages and wave at him from the car. <laughs> There's a lot of which that. I found very very fun. What? But anyway, what what have you been watching on on what is it Formula on the Formula One, One channel? Uh, the cha- they did a brilliant brilliant video about the Mercedes strategy calls for the Spanish Grand Prix. So this is the race where Lewis Hamilton stuck behind uh, Verstappen didn't really have the pace to get past him so they decided to call Hamilton in put him 23 seconds back from Verstappen and basically said go and between fresh tires and clear air they pushed Red Bull into this position where they either pit and lose track position or they try and stay ahead and Hamilton will catch him overtake him on fresher tires it was a brilliant Brilliant bit of driving and a I, 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 brilliant bit of driving is a brilliant bit of strategy. What they do in this video, which is that thing that the internet does so well, is they, they take you through the race. They have the onboard driver and um, race engineer and, and it's sort of like all this sort of thing. But then you start hearing voices that we haven't heard before. And these are members of the Mercedes strategy team in Brackley at the circuit, sort of going, hi, I've got this plan. If we do this thing, it might work. Oh, right. And then like Toto Wolf will pop up on the radio and go, okay, explain it to me. How are we going to do it? So these are the voices you see when you, whenever they cut to the camera focusing on that kind of, it's not a KVM switch, but that big thing with all the names on it and buttons for you talk to listen to people that these are the people that presumably Toto is able to exactly. talk to. So not only people on the pit wall, but also the people back at Brackley in the kind of mission control thing that McLaren popularized. Exactly. So you hear all of this, you hear, um, I think at one point Toto might talk to Michael Massey, but you, you also hear um, Ron Meadows, who's the team's sporting director, who, yeah. who, at one point, he sort of says says to the says to the um, the pit crew in the garage. He says, "Right, red team, get ready, don't move, don't move until the last possible second. And then you hear the engineer sort of come on at the very last second, as like as Hamilton's like a, uh, you know two corners from the pit pit entry, sort of going box box opposite to Verstappen box. So everything is last minute, and you basically hear." All the discussion and all the build-up of all of these people sort of, sort of weighing up in real time. It's like, what do we do? Do we do it? Well, what happens if this happens? Well, you know, if we do this, then we try this. And it's going to be like this. Do you remember that? Okay, so when can we do it? Well, we, it, we can't really do it any later than this. 
and it, it's thrilling. I need to watch this. I listened to this race because I was on my way back from Scotland, so I just streamed the race on my phone and put it on the passenger seat face down so I couldn't watch it and just listen to the commentary. And I haven't actually seen the race through, but this sounds fascinating because I was convinced somewhere down the A1 uh, that Lewis was going to lose it miserably mm. and this was just going to be a Red Bull walkover, and I was totally wrong as a result of this mega strategy call and the fact that the Merc can look after its tyres a bit better than the Red Bull. Mm. Um, so this sounds really fascinating to me. Absolutely worth listening. I, I, I love it. I think it's brilliant. More, please. Uh, for my channel, I have chosen the NTT IndyCar Series channel sponsored by these people and featuring this and all the, these sorts of things. For one very, very simple reason. They have put loads of old races on um on their youtube channel and it's brilliant if you want to watch like there, there's some that are reasonably recent so there's you know 2014 and 2011 you start digging into it and it's like you can watch like the 1996 indycar from long beach race and all this sort of stuff and they've put whole races up on their youtube channel it's bizarre and you can also find so IndyCar once raced at an F1 circuit less than a month after F1 had been there. And it was the Canadian Grand Prix of, I want to say 2002. Um, so you can see Montoya driving the Williams around um, the circuit Juvillanov. And then you can see Paul Tracy doing a pole lap at the same circuit, at the same time of year, with a manual gearbox and with, you know, a fairly recalcitrant IndyCar. And well, this thing, what didn't you say? It was something like it's only 10 seconds slower with a manual gearbox. Yes. Yeah. And Which 200 kilos more weight. impressive. Yeah. So those IndyCar engines must have been putting out a fair whack of power mm. to be on par with some of the lightest F1 cars that, that we've ever seen, frankly, and that BMW V10 was epic. I think it was certainly the gold standard in terms of power, if not reliability. Oh, God, so yeah. I thought that was pretty impressive. Um, it also sparked me to go down a little rabbit hole of looking at um, F1 versus other cars. <laughs> uh, and so I, there's a couple of videos I found, which we'll try, I'll try and remember to put in the show notes, of F1 versus the 919 Evo at Spa. Oh, nice. The two record laps. So you've got Neil Janney in the 919 Evo setting a then lap record at Spa of 1 minute 41.9, I think. And then they've laid that next to Lewis Hamilton from 2020 taking that record back at 1 minute 41.5. Wow. And it's fascinating to watch them side by side and see the where the time is made. And, you know, spoiler alert, it's all in the second it's all in the second sector. It's all the downforce corners because in the first sector the Merc gets mullered. Even though it's a thousand horsepower, the I don't know what the the nine one nine Evo was pushing out, but it's slippy. Mm. So it is so much faster going to Lecom. And it's the second sector. It's when you get to Puhan, the really fast... Um, was that on purpose? Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I would say it properly. Uh, no, I won't. I'm just going to keep calling it Puhan. <laughs> Poo. Sorry, I'm such a child. Um, when he gets to the really sort of high-speed downforce corners, the Merc 
catches up and is more or less passed and maintains it to the end. The third sector, particularly that that sort of flat out dash down to the bus stop chicane, mm. the nine one nine catches up an awful lot just because its terminal velocity is is astonishing. And I think where the Merc actually kind of hits a a brick wall in terms of drag versus power, the the nine one nine just keeps going. Mm. And so it's it's half a second in it towards the, the end of the lap. That was really interesting. I also found another one of, I think it was Spa again, and it was just regular old old like the Toyota TSO fifty or whatever mm. it is, and and that was interesting to see that again. It's it's just it's all the high speed stuff that the. the the WEC cars are just quicker in a straight line, or they have a faster terminal velocity, and they're less draggy, and so they can they can achieve their speed in different ways. But they're so bulky and heavy by comparison, and there's an awful lot of complaints at the moment about the current F1 cars and how heavy and 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 sort of lumbus, cumbersome they are mm. compared to the sort of lithe things we remember from 2005, and you go and watch it versus the onboard of a WEC car and ugh, the, it's it, it's night and day. But I, I've gone down this little rabbit hole of onboards, which has led me to my video pick of the week, which is Abby Eaton, um, who was the driver on the last series of the Grand Tour mm-hmm. and some of the specials, I think. Um, excellent driver. Uh, onboard in a Praga sort of single-seater-ish kind of thing. I forget... Um, I forget what the the actual model name of the the Praga the is, R1. but she's a the R one. Thank you. She's at Alton Park in a Brit car race, starting from the pit lane because of some problem during qualifying, and she's basically tearing through the field like they're standing still to catch up. And I think by the end of the clip, take the lead of the race. And it's just fascinating to watch a driver. Okay, some of the cars she's so much faster than like that. Um, the, the the video of the Lotus Elise going through the pack of other Elises mm. at, um, oh, at Bathurst. Uh, at Bathurst, yes. There's a degree of of luck in some of it, but also just the the driver skill. And it's also that Praga. You'd think, looking at it from the outside, would be just so smooth and easy to drive. Her hands are all over the place. It looks brutal to drive. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting watching a professional racing driver versus who I feel there are a few well-heeled amateurs there because her line choice versus theirs and her ability on the brakes versus other people's is what makes up so many places. I really, really enjoyed watching it. I'm not much for on board, but this one was a really, really good one. Um, And though I don't actually have a channel pick because I've been watching too many mountain biking (laughs) and hi-fi videos um, for me to have a channel pick to to say, I would say that Abby Eaton's channel is worth a subscribe because there's a bunch of other on boards on there including her winning the Mazda MX-5 trophy in 2014 in really quite special circumstances. (laughs) So I I, I think those would be my picks for the week, but really, really watch that on board Mm. um, from the Brit car because it's just so special. And it it did make me think, I wonder how that first series of Grand Tour would have been received had they not had the American... Guy, the NASCAR driver, Mike, what's his face, in there, and had they had Abby Abby from the word go, Mm. I wonder. I, I, it's a shame because I didn't think she got a fair crack at being a TV stunt driver, because she was so good in those series. Clearly, super talented. Mm. Um, I'd love to have seen her on more. So yeah, you know, there you go. But do give that video a watch and do give her channel a watch too because there's some good stuff on there. And also a Racing Pride ambassador. Yes. 
with that, I think we've come to the end of this week's this week's podcast. This week's podcast. When was the last one we did? Like three weeks ago. Something like that. <laughs> time time flies. We're sorry. We would like to be on a more regular schedule, but you know, COVID and lives and small children and, and other things. So we will try and get back to you with another show. I am wondering whether we should do another one of those kind of chatty shows next time and kind of alternate those with film reviews. So we're not pressed to do such massive research every time. Because one of the problems with putting this together behind the veil a little bit is is deciding what to watch. Mm. And then making the time to go and research it, watch it, come up with some coherent thoughts, or in my case, some rude things to say about it. Um, so perhaps we will do an alternate sort of chatty show and then review show like we have here. But and thank you all very much for listening. Uh, please do subscribe on your podcast repository of choice. Please tell other people about the podcast, share the word and so on. It does make a big difference to us. We will see you next time. I think we're all off to go and crash a Ford Mustang into a lamppost. <laughs> Until next time, everyone. Bye.